0: Welcome to Part 2 of the Top 3 Most Influential Islands. Back in the studio today are our three co-hosts, Associate Professor Thomas Burgess, Professor Ernie Tucker, and myself, Lieutenant Mac Anderson. In Part 1, we discussed three islands, Zanzibar, the Falklands, and Iceland. In Part 2, we'll discuss three additional islands, and ultimately come to a decision of who deserves the moniker of the most influential islands in the world.
1: Well, Mac, thanks so much, and I would like to kind of kick off our discussion in this round talking about Hong Kong. And to me, Hong Kong is an amazingly important island, uh, both historically and uh, in the current day. Its history, of course, is very closely tied to the history in general of imperialism, and particularly British imperialism. Of course, uh, it's, it's famous as a kind of way station for the british to export things that they had been growing in india such as opium were very infamous things uh into china but it was also a, a way station for chinese goods to go out it was just in general a very important became a very important conduit of trade with china and that is what led to its modern importance uh it became after uh the 19th century and into the 20th century, a very important uh, location of international financial uh, activities of all kinds. I, I mean, it was connected to, of course, the, the British financial activities in the city of London, but Hong Kong itself uh, spawned several extraordinarily important commercial empires across Asia that, that have connections now uh, all the way even to North America. Uh, people, for example, in Canada, talk about Vancouver as a miniature Vancouver, British Columbia, as a miniature Hong Kong because of the amazing family connections of people from Hong Kong to 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 uh, British Columbia. Um, so, so Hong Kong, in many ways, uh, is, is has been very important in the in the world system. A- and I would say, though, at the moment, um, it is so important in The Chinese story. China is in the the midst of a a huge uh, discussion, we can call it, about what is the meaning of being Chinese and what Chinese society is going to look like. Hong Kong, of course, being a British colony first, now what we would call a special area of China, has always had a different political, social, and economic system connected to China but separate from it. The Chinese now have signaled that they're uncomfortable with this and it's an unresolved problem. The problem for the Chinese is whether or not they're uncomfortable with it, they still have to and want to live with Hong Kong as a major economic force. So they're trying to divorce the political implications of their control of, of Hong Kong from the economic implications. And that's, a, that's an unresolved story. So to me – this is one of the reasons I think Hong Kong, both historically and at present, is one of the most interesting islands. And of course, Hong Kong has a mainland section, too. But And so I can, I can talk a little bit about that. But the, but the essence of Hong Kong is found on Hong Kong Island. And uh, uh, it's, to me, a very interesting place.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Ernie, for those comments on Hong Kong. And, and this is very close to my heart because I spent a summer teaching English there in my mid-20s. And... It's painful to see what the Chinese in Hong Kong have endured in recent times due to this official campaign of suppression of dissent. So you raise a very important point is Hong Kong is a test case of what um, the Chinese regime can get away with. If they can suppress dissent in in Hong Kong, then what's preventing them from doing so on the mainland? I want to also point out that Hong Kong is also really influential because as one of these Asian tiger economies after, after World War II that really took off and kind of not just Hong Kong, but South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, etc., Singapore, of course. And they really kind of showed the world this alternative form of economic development, which has led to hundreds of millions of people being lifted out of poverty through free market principles, primarily in the private sector. So Hong Kong played a key role in that transformation.
1: Indeed it did. And, uh, it's, a uh, the, the the perhaps the most frustrating thing about hong kong is the is it still an unresolved story i guess it's 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 hard to know where it's going to go there's so many different important strands and so many dramas that it it plays a part in it's and you and you've signaled some other ones too there so right. thank you yeah
0: ernie i'll tell you you know i've been on a real opium kick lately and by that i mean the history of of opium so i'd like to know more about the specific role that Hong Kong played, was it simply a, a distribution hub or was there kind of a deeper influence when we talk about the opium wars in Hong Kong?
1: Well, of course, the opium wars are what what really – Hong Kong is kind of the result of the opium wars. The opium wars were kind of the initial foray. They represent the, the kind of the, the conflict between the British and the Chinese over the initial foray. And the attempt of the Chinese to put some controls on the British. And the British, um, as much as they were exporting opium, uh, paradoxically and interestingly, the British are always very big insisters on the rule of law, right? So they wanted to get a bunch of opium addicts in China, but legally, <laughs> in a sense. And it's it sounds like a roundabout thing to say. But I think that 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 there was a feeling that uh, th- the British commercial interests sort of look the other way of the British moral interests in terms of this pushing the opium. And it's interesting that I think there were always a lot of anti-opium activists, uh, particularly among British clergy, particularly among British clergy, for example, who were missionaries, let's say, in India, also some who were in Hong Kong itself. Um, but they were their voices were never quite as loud as those in the city of London, I think of a company, the most famous company I think of is Jardine Matheson, which is one of the quintessential uh, British companies of Hong Kong. Uh, now it's a very uh, a bulwark of 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 modern uh, global capitalism and trade. Uh, there are other chapters in the story going back to the 19th century that are are interesting in terms of their uh, uh, shedding light on this, on this uh, somewhat uh, uh, nefarious uh, opium uh, commerce that they they had a part in. So, so it's a complicated, uh, you know, multi part uh, system. And I think it's a very good question. The British themselves were torn. So, quite interesting to think about.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things I have my students read is the letter from Commissioner Lin to Queen Victoria, talking about opium. And he very, very powerfully brings up this idea of, it's illegal in your own country. You don't let your own people do this drug, and yet you are so insistent on bringing this into our country, selling it. And at one point I believe the British, uh, the East India Company was actually giving away free opium pipes right. to the Chinese population as a... Promotionally. You know, yeah, that's a good uh, a good system for peddling drugs, but morally uh, quite questionable. So I, I just find the history of opium China and, and colonialism to be fascinating.
2: It is. It's not just the British, it's the Americans as well. I mean, the uh, the opium that the Americans sold in Hong Kong was grown originally in Turkey, apparently, and mm-hmm. it was shipped across the world by American merchants. So mm-hmm. that, there's an the American component of the story as well. Right. America was also sending missionaries there as well, sometimes on the same ships as that were transporting opium.
1: Right. And the tension between those two visions of how we connect with the world is, a, is such a fascinating thing that perhaps all these islands, there's an element, but in particular with Hong Kong, you see it. You see it as a, as a kind of focal point. I want to, to, to turn the floor over to Mac now to talk about another, to me, fascinating island,
0: Cuba. Yeah, absolutely. So Cuba, we we talked in episode one, uh, considering Zanzibar, the Cuba of Africa. And so now continuing with our Cold War theme and the importance of islands to the Cold War, we'll talk about the Cuba of Cuba. And from the Battle of Santiago to the botched Bay of Pigs invasion to the superpower showdown during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the island of Cuba has had an outsized impact on the course of history. Colonized by Spain for over 400 years, the fight for Cuban independence began in earnest in 1868 and continued for the next three decades. In the late 1890s, as the fighting became ever more vicious, the United States sent the USS Maine to Havana to protect American interests on the island. Following the mysterious explosion of the warship in Havana Harbor, the U.S. declared war on Spain, thus beginning the Spanish-American War. Just months later, At the Battle of Santiago, on the opposite end of the island as Havana, the American fleet soundly defeated the Spanish fleet, thus eliminating the last major elements of Spanish naval power, vanquishing Spain from the Caribbean, and earning Cuba its independence. Following the war, the Platt Amendment gave the U.S. an indefinite lease for the now infamous naval base at Guantanamo Bay. In the first half of the turbulent 20th century, Cuba went through a number of different governments, with each seemingly more flawed than the next. After a seven year military dictatorship, communists under Fidel Castro overthrew that government and established the communist government that we're familiar with today. As the closest Soviet ally to the United States, Cuba posed a number of diplomatic and military challenges. In his memoirs, Robert Kennedy notes that the tensions over Soviet missile sites in Cuba, quote, brought the world to the abyss of nuclear destruction and the end of mankind. Additionally, Cuba played a huge role in the various proxy wars that took place in Africa during this time, sending advisors to various African governments, and still today, Over 20 years after the end of the Cold War, tensions between the U.S. and Cuba remain rocky. And folks, if potential nuclear abyss and the total end of mankind is not influential, then I'm not quite sure what is.
2: Yeah, picking up on the Cold War theme there, Mac, uh, you make some really important comments. And just wanted to also add to that that Che Guevara was the originator of this idea of tricontinentalism. Let's confront the U.S. imperial monster with not just one Vietnam, but three Vietnams on three different continents, hence tricontinentalism. And he put his money where his mouth was. He went off to the Congo to fight there in the, in the 60s and then eventually Bolivia later on. Um, so you're right in pointing out that the Cubans had this outsized influence in shaping the Cold War, especially in places like Africa. At one point, the Cubans had thousands of soldiers fighting in Angola, thousands also in ethiopia and castro even tried failed to do so but tried to to set up this federation of like-minded socialist red sea states somalia ethiopia and south yemen which went nowhere for obvious reasons but that was his goal and dream for a while so yeah cuba we we often forget how much he was punching above its weight in the cold war
0: and i think thomas as well we today at least we think of cuba as a pretty insular place right that's a self-contained unit and we forget all of the influence it had during the cold war whether it was sending cultural attachés military forces right it was doctors. very much doctors absolutely very much not an insular island it had its um i don't want to say claws but it had its Uh, Fingers in a lot of different pots trying to promote the virtues of communism.
1: Yeah, I think these are all great points. I'm intrigued by your mentioning of the 400 years of Spanish colonial heritage. And the part that intrigues me the most about that is something that I have come to love uh, over the last few years, which is Cuban music. Uh, I'm a fanatical devotee of Celia Cruz, who's one of the great. She's like the... Ella Fitzgerald of Cuba, and uh, passed away recently, but uh, absolutely stunning. And and Cuban music to me has been so important uh, in 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 all of Latin music uh, as as a kind of lodestone for for how how to the blend of African and European and Caribbean rhythms and things. And I wonder, you know, how this how this connects with Cuba's. Place in the in in the world because you're right. I think in terms of its political influence now it's kind of limited. But but again I think about on the streets of of any borough of New York City, uh, the impact of Cuban music is heard every minute almost. You know it's a, it's such an important piece. Uh, and this is of course with all due respect to the other incredible Latin traditions such as Mexican and South American, but. Cuban has that kind of very special cultural place in the in the Latin musical heart. So maybe any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not 100% sure why it's had such an an outsized cultural influence, but it's very clear that it has. Whether it's New York, like you mentioned, of course, Miami, even huh. other places in Latin America that do have their own very unique cultural and musical scenes – are adopting some forms of this Cuban tradition. And it's there's just something clearly appealing uh, on a mass level about the the arts and the culture of, of these musici- musicians and the musical traditions that are coming out of Cuba.
1: Indeed. It's amazing.
2: And there's also this musical dialogue between Cuba and Africa that... Mm-hmm. can be sort of emphasized a bit more. Certainly Africans have learned from Cubans and vice versa. It's this this wonderful exchange across the Atlantic. A
1: two-way street. Exactly. There. Very much yeah. so.
2: If you go to uh, you know, clubs in Africa, you'll hear Cuban-style music being played or at least influenced by the Cubans. So I wanted to go even further back in time and just mention a couple things why Cuba was influential, and that is Spanish treasure fleets that almost all of them stopped at some point in Havana for, you know, to make the long preparations for the Atlantic crossing.
1: Mm-hmm. So It was the heart of Spanish America. Yeah. Havana was, there's no way around that. It was the heart
0: of Spanish America. It was the great stopping off point from Europe, of course, and then the starting, the launching point to, to other, Spanish American empire. Exactly. Yeah. All right, and now we're going to have Thomas take us to the the sunny shores of the Mediterranean and discuss Sicily with us.
2: Yeah, so Sicily makes my list because of its location astride the trade routes of the Mediterranean. And as a battleground for kingdoms and empires since ancient times. Greeks settled along the eastern coast in the 8th century BCE. And Syracuse was one of the largest cities of the Mediterranean with a population of a quarter million. Dominant in the west, however, was the city-state of Carthage, Based in what is now Tunisia, the frequent wars fought between the Greeks and Carthaginians eventually attracted the notice of the Romans, who then fought the Carthaginians for control of the island. This was the first of three wars between two rising powers, Rome and Carthage, which which decided the fate of the whole Western Mediterranean. After several centuries of Roman rule, Muslims from North Africa invaded. After decades of fighting and repeated rebellions on the part of Sicily's Christian inhabitants, the Muslims defeated all resistance. Under Muslim rule, Palermo became the third largest city in Europe behind only Constantinople and Cordoba. Much of the island converted to Islam and the economy thrived. But then in the later 11th century, the Normans, the Christianized descendants of the Vikings, conquered the island in what some historians regard as the first in a series of many crusades against the Muslim world. Muslim rebellions continued, however, for another 150 years. It wasn't until the 1240s that one can say the island was Latinized and the Muslim population either converted or expelled. And so Sicily was influential in ancient and medieval times because of its strategic location and the willingness of powerful peoples to fight wars to acquire its port cities and rich soils. To some extent, this went on in later centuries as dynasties from what is now Spain, Germany, France, and Austria also contested the island before its eventual unification with Italy in the
1: 1860s. It's such an interesting story with Sicily. And I think the most fascinating part for me, there are two things that I think are really fascinating. One would be uh, Sicily as a place where there was this interchange, in fact, of knowledge and learning from the Middle East to Europe, uh, particularly in the courts of these Norman kings uh, of Sicily. The other part is uh, a little more uh, nebulous, and that has to do with the fact that Sicily uh, is part of Italy, but yet all the Sicilians I know and many of the people from the mainland of Italy don't (laughs) consider it to be really part of Italy. And it's interesting to think about, you know, how that non-Italianness and Italianness has kind of been an interesting tension in 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 the way Sicilians think about themselves
2: yeah I use the word unification, but that should be maybe in quotation marks because clearly there is this strong regionalism in Italy between northerners and southerners, with Sicily being in some ways at the very you know forefront of this uh confrontation, so to speak, between regional types, what have you.
0: I was wondering, Thomas, you know we associate the Normans, of course, with ten sixty six the invasion of England. We never really uh, I think associate normans with sicily anymore what happened to the normans in sicily
2: how did they get to this part of the world is your question basically
0: Uh, essentially yeah Yeah.
2: i mean they they came from normandy in northern france to southern italy to the toe of the italian boot originally as mercenaries as sought after soldiers in the almost constant fighting of that period in southern italy and then gradually these mercenaries began to assert their own power And to establish their own states and from which they launched the invasion of Sicily from the toe of the Italian boot. So I guess the Normans who invaded Sicily felt it was just a natural progression from their conquests of southern Italy itself to the island as well.
0: Yeah, that's really neat because it, it seems like the Normans didn't go there expecting to conquer, right, to create a new no. kingdom. And it was kind of happenstance, right? They, they were hired as mercenaries, go to this land after a period of years, uh, you know, kind of group together and say, let's just kick the Muslims out. Interesting. Yeah. I think we've got some really neat entries on this list. We've discussed Sicily, Cuba, Hong Kong, and of course in episode one, Zanzibar, Iceland, and the Falklands. So now it's time to think about criteria, right? What do we consider as some defining characteristics of what makes an influential island?
2: I think islands cannot just be stepping stones. They have to be pivots of world history in and of themselves, exercise influence beyond their shores to neighboring territories.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that the influence has to be multidimensional. That is to say, not in just one dimension. There has to be an economic, there has to be perhaps a social, a political, military, all the different dimensions of human life are included. Because there are particular islands that might have a particular importance in a particular area, but the the broader scope of importance in, in all the dimensions, I think, is really important.
0: Right. Yeah. Something that not necessarily spreads across the entire globe, but clearly spreads beyond the borders of just the island and encompasses this kind of multi-domain impact on other peoples. You know, it's it's not just... The population of the island being affected, or having done something significant in history, it's it's getting that influence to others, right? Spreading that culture, spreading uh, the benefits of a global economy, right? And having that that outsized impact. I absolutely agree. Um, are some important defining criteria here.
2: So, so by contrast, we have the island of Ibiza in the Balearic Islands in the Mediterranean, which is this huge magnet for European partygoers. And for them, it's probably a crucial life passage for them to mm-hmm. spend a week or two raging in, in Ibiza. But that doesn't suggest any political or military influence.
1: And for those in California, to take a sailing trip off to the Catalina Islands is a delightful thing to do. And that speaking from personal experience, but it, but to say that they have massive political, social, economic impact would be really an overstatement.
0: Right. Yeah, having having been in Rota, Spain for four years, uh, I can certainly assure you that going to the club in Ibiza was, was a very important part of many, many sailors' experience. But I would agree, it, it simply doesn't match the criteria we're look, looking for here, which is going past that simple pleasure. It's about real-world influence in multi-domains. Uh, so let's go ahead, uh, Thomas, and start with you um, and your thoughts about what we might be able to cut or keep in these lists.
2: Yeah, thanks. I've been looking over Ernie's contributions and just a few things to say. You know, what's not to like about Iceland, which was ranked by the Global Peace Index as the most peaceful country on the planet? Um, And then, even more fascinating, Iceland has a higher percentage of golfers than Scotland, where the sport originated. In fact, they have what is called the Arctic Open, which is held annually every summer solstice, where the golfers come from all, all over the world. In their legions and golf all night long, I mean that really puts Iceland on the cultural map of the world, if if, if nothing else. But that said, um, I just can't believe that Iceland is as most as is as influential as some other islands we've discussed today, such as Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong, like we said before, has had this huge commercial economic impact, not just on its region but um, the world in general, because of its the model of economic growth, which was embraced by many people beyond its shores, it sort of, sort of showed how wealth could be created in post-World War II Asian society.
1: I uh, wanted to just spend a little time on uh, what Mac had chosen, uh, the two, the Falkland Islands and Cuba. And both, I think, are, are fascinating. The Falkland Islands, I think he made a compelling case about how important they were both for the British and for the Argentinians in their respective political evolutions and transformations. Uh, That being said, uh, his discussion of Cuba, though, really moved me because Cuba had this incredible importance in the Cold War, which seems to me now is just now beginning to shift to a new phase. I mean, Cuba is now definitely in a post-Fidel Castro mode. Fidel has been dead for a, a little while, But it's only now, I think, with the beginnings of this new phase that we're going to see the emergence of a Cuba that's going to perhaps go back to what Cuba had historically been in the years and centuries before uh, Fidel and before the communists, which was its role as this incredibly important center culturally and also perhaps economically uh, in many ways too for for the Americas. And, and also, of course, as Thomas, as you mentioned, all the African connections that it, that it will continue to have and all those things. So I, I, I really think of the two that you presented to me, Cuba was the, uh, Falcons are cool, but Cuba was really a central.
0: Ernie, I I absolutely agree. And I think listening to those or thinking back to those definitions and those criteria we laid out, Cuba clearly is a far better fit. And it's also exciting because, like you brought up, this idea that there could be more shifts. We might see more influence from Cuba as things start to change in the future. So I totally agree. Thomas, for your entries, uh, looking over these, you know, Sicily, of course, is near and dear to my heart, having operated in the Mediterranean uh, for pretty much the last four years. Uh, And if we consider the Strait of Gibraltar kind of the gate to the Mediterranean, then you have to consider Sicily to be the kind of inner gate. To the eastern Mediterranean. It plays that critical role in geography. But talking about the impact of Zanzibar, not only in the 19th century, but also when we get to these debates over the, the Cold War and unification with Tanzania and some of the issues that we're seeing in the, or we saw in the 20th century, uh, was, I think, really compelling. We see in Zanzibar, and to a degree in Sicily, but this cultural intermingling and this idea that islands can be the center of a truly global economy, whether it was traders from India, traders from uh, Arab nations in Africa, traders from uh, potentially uh, Europe. Uh, And we see here that even ivory went as far as the Americas, right? Uh, This relatively small island is, is acting as the centerpiece To a burgeoning global economy and creating that interconnectedness that Sicily being relatively protected and isolated in the Mediterranean simply couldn't have the claim to do. Uh, So I I think that from that point, the intermingling of cultures, the spread of influence via global trade, uh, Zanzibar to me is a more compelling story.
2: That's very interesting and reminds me of, you know, the word insular comes from the word island and it means sort of isolated, insular. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. Zanzibar is very cosmopolitan. Uh, I've been there many times and I always feel in Zanzibar to be very close to Arabia or India or Africa. I'm seeing people from these parts of the world constantly moving through the streets, et cetera, speaking their different languages and it's in the uh, the visual landscape as well all these influences coming from from the indian ocean world and so i take your point definitely islands can be quite cosmopolitan
1: and let's not forget one of the most interesting connections which is uh, freddie mercury who is whose heritage goes back to zanzibar although he was born and i guess raised in the united kingdom but Uh, Another interesting connection to Zanzibar.
2: Yeah, he spent years of his childhood in Zanzibar. His his parents were Parsi immigrants from India. They were Zoroastrians, and so one of the most famous restaurants in Zanzibar now is called Mercury's in his honor. Um, But yeah, he went off to boarding school in India before going on to the UK where he made his career as a rock star. So.
1: Right. We know that we know the rest of that story.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but is his parents actually fled Zanzibar because of the revolution that we just mentioned earlier?
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah. All right. Thanks guys. Really great discussion. It is uh, to me so so awesome to hear about these different islands and really some unconventional ways in which we might consider something to be influential or have influence on on others. Uh, But it looks like we've agreed on three, and that would be Cuba, Hong Kong, and Zanzibar. Of course, there's plenty more to talk about this subject and some truly great islands that have been left off of this list. We'll save that for a round of beer between friends. We hope to have inspired you to discuss some of these historical events yourself, as there's always so much more to discover with these topics. From all of us here at the Naval Academy, thanks for tuning in. See you next time.